Yeah, it'll stay. I'll just hunch back. <laughs> okay. It'll be good for the audio. And it's still you're still running. Okay. Yep, I'm just gonna do a big clap. Okay. I'll let yeah. you do your thing. And then I'll edit it later. Perfect. Thanks, Marcus. That was Marcus, basically the executive producer here, and also who I'm going to be uh, interviewing later. So, yeah. Okay. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming again to uh, episode one. Oh, my God. I can't even believe it. Thanks for uh, showing up. So, do you guys go grocery shopping? I go grocery shopping. I don't know. I don't know if you guys do, but I definitely do. Um, and so, I have to go out and um, I've been trying to eat less meat. You know, it's better for myself, better for the environment. Um, there is a Chinese American market near where I live and it has just the best cheap Asian food that I can find. A little thing about me is I love Asian cuisine, like genuine Asian cuisine. Oh, I could eat it all day, every day. Um, so I went there and I was looking for some bok choy, um, some daikon red. this podcast for a special news bulletin. Earl Thomas, the man protesting at the abandoned turf field by the McDonald's, has heightened his seven-day hunger strike over the proposed removal of this plot. We take you now to Jane out in the field to cover this story. Earl Thomas, a proclaimed patriotic average Joe, has taken to himself a one-man protest of the development of this grass lot. It is destined to be converted into a native wildlife garden, but his determination has prevented any action. Now, he has chained himself to the turf and swallowed the key, saying he won't come off until the grass is saved. Earl, why is this important to you? Well, why is it important to me? Well, you know, you see all those tree-hugging Hippie's doing it to save a tree, so I thought, well, why not save the grass, too? I mean, I walk by this grass every day, and it brings me great joy seeing that there's a little patch of green just still sitting there. It's not going to be something like those native pollinator gardens that are popping up all over the place, and they're trying to turn this one, too, so it's important to me, you know? Uh, something nice to look at, and something nice and soft to lay on, and you can host your barbecues and stuff on it. So it's important to me, as it should be important to everyone else. And what do you have to say to those who are for the removal of turf grass? <laughs> what do I have to say to those who want to rip up all the grasses? I mean, come on, where does it stop, people? I mean, first, it's, you're encouraging us on our properties to remove it, and now, now this? I mean, come on, this is like, this is like one of the last turf plots left downtown. And you just want to rip it up and put flowers and stuff to attract bees? I mean, where, where, where else are us common people supposed to go, huh? Huh? Soon enough, there's not going to be any spots for us. You're focusing all on the bees and the birds and what's to have ya. I mean, I mean, this has cost me quite a pretty penny to just, uh, just to try to keep it together. I mean, 
I've spent a lot of money on these chains to lock me to the turf. I, I, I mean, it's about a thousand dollars in the hole now, with all costs considered, of mowing and uh, watering, and now the chains and this seven-day hunger strike has cost me seven days of labor. So, but it's it's important. More people need to be doing stuff like this. Okay. Thank you, Earl. This was enlightening. Now we take you back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Cephalanthus, George Washington Carver, Squirrels Making My Day, Turf Grass, Native Wildlife Habitats. Yeah, so that's, um, that's how I ended up getting robbed and also, um, riding a donkey for the very first time. So I hope you enjoyed that. So today I have a very, very interesting topic that, uh, okay, disclosure, I think it's interesting. You guys might not. Um, I'm very passionate about it. Um, you might be able to guess what it's about based on your intuition. Uh, but today we are going to talk about the U.S.'s most irrigated crop and why I think you should kill it. I really do. I hate it so much. I think it should just all burn up or be dug up and replaced with something better. What I'm talking about is turf lawns. I think I just heard like three people turn off this podcast. So not sorry. Yeah, I think you should kill your lawn. I, I hate them. Um, they're ugly, for one. Uh, but you know what? I, I'm not going to get into it right now. Uh, let, me, let me give you an intro first. So grass lawns isn't something new. It's something that we've had for, for a very long while. So lawns are basically something that we cover our property with. All of that bare land um, that we don't want to be bare, we cover it in turf grass. It stays all year, comes back next year, uh, nice and green, can be soft. But it didn't used to always be this way. Lawns really started back in the 16th century. Um, and it comes from a Middle English word called uh, laund, L-A-U-N-G-E. Oh, yes, my laund, which back then originally meant an opening in a forest um, or like a glade, something like that. And so from there, people started going, oh, how I love those lawns. I would quite like a laund in my we don't have a word for it, but a bare open area. So I guess we're going to call it a laund as well. It's my own very little laund. Into the 18th century, the wealthy nobility really ramped up their production of lawns. Um, since they were wealthy, they could afford to 
to pay a whole bunch of people to spread the seed, to grow it, to water it, to maintain it, get rid of weeds, um, and maintain lawns soon became a status symbol um, because they could afford to not fill their their yard with a whole bunch of uh, vegetables, fruits. Um, they could just fill it with useless, pointless grass that made them look all austere and um, better than you. Um, and so that's that's kind of where it started and got popularized um, out in um, Europe. I'm sure I'm getting some of the details wrong. If I am, go ahead and send me an email and tell me how wrong I am, and I'll be happy to hear it. Anyhow, so that was in Europe. Areas like Scotland and the UK um, were really, really big into lawns. And when people started coming over to the Americas, uh, they were like, well, I want a little bit of my home to come with me. I like lawns. Um, I think the states should have them too. So mostly Scottish immigrants, but anybody who liked lawns would br bring over seeds um, and start making their own lawns. And it was popularized um, in the states because of that, because they, they wanted that reminder of their home. Um, and especially because a lot of games were starting to be playing on it, like lawn bowling. So it made its way over to the States. Um, mostly richer people who could afford it still were the ones growing it. But as time went on, it just became ubiquitous. And honestly, I wish, I wish we would have chosen just anything else than lawns to just cover everything from east to west coast to even Hawaii, lawns are, are just prevalent whenever there's like a, a house or, or an estate or anything like that. I just think they're boring. You know, hate me if you want, but I think they're boring. And like I said, they are our most irrigated crop in the States. Over 40 million acres of grass in the continental U.S. Um, is irrigated each year. That's a lot of land just devoted to grass. It's so much. And, and those turf grasses aren't from here. The vast majority of the time, pretty much 99% of them are European grasses. And so these turf grasses are, are low-growing and mat-forming, and, and that's why they were popularized. They're also tolerant to repeated mowing and are, are just pretty much entirely non-native, which is sad, which is really sad. The only one that I can think of that is native is buffalo grass, which is native to the Western US and Canada. That one I'm okay with. It's kind of cool. Um, but the rest just are really no good. A lot of the times where we plant them, it doesn't really even make sense to plant them there, like out west in Nevada, in, in Canada, not Canada. <laughs> yeah, don't plant it in Canada either if you're a Canadian listening to this. Just do something else. Maybe plant a Saskatoon berry. It's a good tree. But lawns are also ecological dead zones, and that's a big, big reason that I hate them. 
Because if you think about it, these grasses aren't native, so they don't have any native interactions between other plants, um, birds, insects. Um, it, they're, they're all pretty much just sterile environments. And that's one big reason we are seeing a massive decline in insect populations and other populations as well, because all of these plants that used to exist there are now replaced with non-native turf grasses. There's no more silphium. There's no more um, cephalanthus. There's, there's just turf grass. Birds and insects rely on specific plants to be there to reproduce and get food. Without them, they're going to starve a little bit. So I'm going to carry you on a thought experiment. I want you to sit there, close your eyes, and think very, very hard. Okay. If you sat down, you close your eyes, you take in a deep breath. Good. I want you to just imagine in your mind's eye all of the area around you that is covered in turf grass. Maybe it's your lawn your neighbor's lawn. Um, maybe you live in a cul-de-sac, so there's quite a lot of lawn there. I want you to now imagine what it looked like before all that lawn was there and all of the housing development was there. What did it look like? Probably imagining maybe trees, a forest. Some of you likely lived in uh, a former wetland um, it used to be a wetland, and then we drained it. So there's going to be some water-loving plants there as well. You're probably imagining something a lot more diverse than just a monoculture of grass. Now scale that up to all of the U.S., all of those different environments that used to be habitats for for plants, for birds, reptiles, mammals, the list goes on and on, but are now human establishments with grass lawns. It's quite large, and it's hard to conceptualize it because you can't really even imagine what it used to look like unless you've lived long enough to actually observe the progression. I'm, I'm quite lucky, lucky to... Um, to have observed that, <laughs> lucky in a facetious sense. When, when I grew up, um, there used to be a whole big stream network and a few prairie areas around me. Um, and these stream networks intermingled throughout the houses. So you'd have cattails, water-loving plants, and a lot of frogs living in these streams. As the housing development there grew, um, they diverted the water. And over the years, those streams just disappeared. And the frogs did too. There's still frogs there. You can still hear them, but just not as prevalent as it used to be. There's a lot of bullfrogs, tree frogs. Because yes, there are tree frogs in Ohio, and they're super cool. Um, but they also 
took apart that prairie where I used to hunt for butterflies and replaced it with housing as well. And that just took away a lot of environments. Where are they now? Not there. Now, I'm not saying let's, let's get rid of all of the humans that are living there and, and reconvert it back to the environments it used to be. We've already dug ourselves in too deep. What we can do is change the environments that we own right now. That's very, very feasible. And honestly, I think it's better in the long run because, um, oh yeah, by the way, you can open your eyes. I didn't think I needed to tell you that, but maybe I did. I, th I think I see one of you still closing their eyes. So go ahead and open your eyes now. It's okay. Okay, good. Uh, I think it's better in the long run because we will be supporting, we will be supporting native biota. So if, if you're sitting there wondering, well, what can we do instead? I've got answers for you. And I've got arguments as to why you should switch as well. The first one um, was obviously they are dead zones. That's the biggest one. We need something that's more sustainable. Second is Americans spend so much fucking money on maintaining their boring drab grass lawns. So much money on pesticides, fertilizer, on reseeding, on mowing, and not to mention all of the time that goes into that. And that's just on the, the, the personal consumer, the, the homeowner there. It can also cause a lot of downstream money costs um, through a thing called cultural eutrophication. I'll repeat that one more time for you. Cultural eutrophication. What's cultural eutrophication? Glad you asked. Cultural eutrophication is basically where you have a waterway, whether it's a pond, lake, a river, stream, and over time there is a slow deposit of nutrients, um, and a lot of the time it's fertilizer. So those nutrients build up, um, and it causes algal blooms. If you're from the Midwest, you're, you're probably pretty used to algal blooms happening in the lakes, uh, the Great Lakes. A lot of that is caused by our, our fertilizer use from farms and our lawns. We apply it and it runs off um, and then it just causes the massive algal blooms um, that just coats the, the, the top of the water. Those die decomposed and it can cause anoxic zones in the water where there's no oxygen and can also kill the fish and anything else that's living there, which is very bad, very, very bad and costs us a lot of money to try to fix it. So you have to pay more in taxes to try to repair that. So it's not only costing you money to maintain it, but it's also costing you money in the, in the long run cleaning up after ourselves. Gee, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to do that? Well, there are other ways. <laughs> you don't have to have these manicured grass lawns. There are alternatives. And quite often, I think, I think they look a little bit better. Um, a, few, a few options for you 
Um, depends on where you live, um, how big your lawn is, what your micro environment is, if it's shadier, sunnier, wet, dry. Um, it depends on all of that. But a few options for you is you can have a lawn of clover. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody knows what clover is, right? Yeah. Um, and you, you can have all of those flowers too, which can look quite pretty. You have a white lawn, white and pink lawn. Who doesn't want that? And it supports bee populations because it gives them um, pollen and, to go with. So you can have clover lawns. Those, those spread out pretty well. Um, you don't really have to maintain it because it doesn't get pretty large. doesn't get over a few inches tall. Don't have to spend a lot of time mowing. Um, another alternative is for if you want a succulent lawn, which is getting popular. A good one is sedum, S-E-D-U-M. It requires little watering because succulents store water. It spreads really, really aggressively and, and can cover your lawn pretty quickly. And it also has yellow flowers. Um, so you'll have this kind of lime green yellow lawn, which is quite gorgeous. I'd take that to grass any day, any day. Another replacement for lawn are for shadier sites, moss lawns. If you have some good shade, some some uh, uh, good moisture in your plot, you, you can put moss and bryophytes all down. Um, and it's nice and spongy. It's kind of like pillow. You can lay on it. It's quite comfortable. And you can have a whole bunch of different types of mosses. And some of them will look much more interesting compared to grasses. They can be shaggy. They can be in mounds. They can grow up trees um, instead of just just all the same. Another two options for you are um, rock lawns. Those are really popular out west where you can replace your lawn with, with different types of rocks, um, big rock structures. You can replace part of it with sand and have a zen garden too. So it's also a little bit useful. You can combine any of these as well. If you want mostly clover lawn with a, a rock, rock lawn garden, um, you can do both of those and they can look quite pretty together if you plan it out. Last one I want to talk about is shrub and perennial beds. Shrub and perennial beds, you can put your favorite shrubs, perennials there that will come back each year. You put mulch on top of it or leaf litter, um, and it just kind of maintains itself. You might have to water it occasionally. But if you pick natives, you have to maintain it a little less because they're already used to this environment. And that brings me to my next point, native plants instead of your lawn. So here soon, I'm going to bring in um, somebody who I love a lot. His name is Marcus Freeman. And we will be talking about, about native plants in, in your lawns and what a native wildlife habitat is. Because we've been working this past year to convert his lawn into a native wildlife habitat. So that's going to be very exciting. I've been working my ass off to try to, to, to do some changes and maintain his garden. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Another option for those of you out there are something that I like a lot and want to repopularize, which is victory gardens. If you are a history buff, you're probably familiar with what a, his, uh, excuse me, a victory garden is. 
These were gardens that were grown in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and Germany during World War I and World War II, which encouraged civilians to garden to boost morale and also supplement food supply. So during during the war, you'd... Um, oh, my God. I'm going to have to stop. All right. I had to take a quick break there because it's currently hot as fuck in the U.S. right now. I don't know if you know that. Uh, yeah, it's pretty hot and I'm recording in a, a small padded closet room. So it's very hot in here. It's nothing but hot in here. Uh, so yeah, I had to take a break before I had a heat stroke, but now I'm back to talk about victory gardens, which were popularized again, World War One, World War II to boost morale and also supplement the food supply so they could get food to the soldiers, but also feed the local populace. So in the U.S., this was greatly popularized by the absolute goat of agricultural science for the time, George Washington Carver, which probably a lot of you are going, wait a minute, I heard that name before. I think that was in like seventh grade history class. Well, yeah, you probably did learn about him in seventh grade history class, but the info they gave you was probably wrong and not the best info about him probably remembered him as the peanut guy, um, the guy who gave us peanut butter. He wasn't actually the person who gave us peanut butter, though. Um, indigenous peoples in the States have been doing it for a while. Um, other groups had been doing it as well, too. So he didn't invent peanut butter, but he did a lot of other things. This is just a quick aside. I'll get back to Victory Gardens in a second. So he was looking at the agriculture we were doing at the time, um, and he wanted alternatives to cotton to prevent soil um, nutrient depletion, which is a big problem we're still facing today because we just plant monocultures, meaning just like one crop on a site year after year, and that just sucks up all the nutrients. So if you diversify what you plant, um, you might be able to, to save some of that topsoil. So he was also promoting at the time environmentalism um, and trying to take care of the, the areas that we grow on right now instead of just, you know, turning it over for a profit, which was very, very progressive for the time. Fuck yes. Fuck yes, George Washington Carver, the absolute goat. He also, since he didn't invent peanut butter, you might be like, okay, but why was he known for peanuts? Well, he gave poor farmers some help by encouraging them to grow peanuts and sweet potatoes um, for food um, and also for selling. Peanuts, if you don't know, are in the legume family, Fabaceae. The hallmark of Fabaceae is that they fix nitrogen from the air into the soil through uh, helpful bacteria known as rhizobia and it's very important nowadays um, because when you cycle crops, often you'll see them cycle it with soybeans to put some nitrogen back in the soil because that's a critical, critical nutrient like we talked about in the previous podcast. So he gave them 105 recipes for peanuts, how to use them, different ways to use them for food, other things, and uh, just about as many for sweet potatoes. And a few of the uses for sweet potatoes he had were, were like things like dyes, candies, and even library paste. So 
dude was pretty pretty inventive. A lot of the stuff didn't end up like panning out into the future, but he still gave poor people, poor marginalized individuals, a way out from growing cotton and uh, being a little bit more sustainable. So thanks, George Washington Carver, for being an awesome dude and uh, being ahead of the times in agricultural science. Anywho, the reason I'm talking about Victory Gardens is I find gardening to be an incredibly meditative experience. You go out into your backyard, check your crops, talk to them, see how they're doing, pull some weeds. I mean, you just spend time caring for another organism. And in, in the end, it cares for you back by giving you food. You could spend hours out there just weeding, listening to music, listening to the birds. And it's like a, a scrub on your mind, just eliminating all the negative shit that's going on. And I think a lot of people could use stuff like that right now um, with climate change, um, coronavirus still being a thing, and just all the general shittiness day-to-day -day of living in the States. So speaking of the general shittiness of living in the States, a fun statistic coming right at you, 23.5 million Americans live in what is known as a food desert. Another thing I need to define, some of you might not know it, food deserts are basically where people don't have good access to affordable and nutritious food. It's limited to them. So if you live in like an urban or suburban area, that might be like a mile square radius where you, you can't get affordable or nutritious food, such as like fresh vegetables and fruits. So maybe the fruit and vegetables are like exorbitantly priced or it's just like a McDonald's and a Burger King and a Taco Bell all surrounding you. That's that's the type of food desert in urban jungles. And for rural areas, it's listed as a food desert if it's greater than 10 miles away. So that's all of you living in the country without any like farmer's markets or, or fresh food markets nearby. You have to drive like an hour to get to just a Walmart. I really have a thing against Walmarts, if you can't tell. So... We got to this point by supermarkets pushing out local retailers, local food retailers, um, and, and just making another type of monoculture, a monoculture of terrible food, low nutrient, high salt, high sugar, um, prepackaged, preprocessed, which just strips, strips away all of the nutrients. And um, it's often cheaper, so people just buy those instead and it, it hurts you in the long run so victory gardens today would be a great way to supplement fresh food and your diet it keeps you healthier and it helps your mind um, because there's a lot of studies out there saying that gardening and natural spaces can help those with depression and improve their mood which again we all really need these days I especially do, and that's why I garden, and that's why I'm here talking to you about gardens. So I am going to next bring in my great friend and also compatriot, Marcus Freeman. Give a round of applause to Marcus Freeman, everybody. Woo! Marcus Freeman, yeah! For anyone listening today, I have a very special treat. Um, I will be interviewing 
someone near and dear to my heart, um, someone who is technically my cousin, um, Marcus the Funky Bunch Freeman. That's me. That is him. Hi. You listen to his woody baritone voice <laughs> and let you let it carry you throughout this. Hi, Lily. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good. It was a, it was a long day at work, kind of. Um, we got off early, but it's it's still long when it's been raining on you all week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I I got to see some cool things. Um, there was a native mint that I I hadn't seen ever before. Oh yeah. Um, I'd seen other mints in that genus, but this one was was crazy cool. Beyond beyond the obvious scent of mint, how do you know what a mint is by sight? Whoa, okay. Um, that's a how great you, question. How can you tell it was a mint? So mints have a few um, identifying features. So one, primarily, is they have square stems. If you look at their stems and feel them, they're square. Like they have they have flat edges to them. It's yeah. like it's like they're kind of like cubish. Yeah, cubish. Imagine um you know like a tesseract, the the geometric shape. Yes. Where it's kind of like indented almost. It's kind of like that, but not a 4D shape. Interesting. So they kind of have like wings at their edges of the square. That's weird. Yeah. Um, and also their leaves are oppositely arranged on the stem. So they'll be right opposite of each other. And they're not divided generally into like little dissected portions like you might see in sunflowers. Um, what do you mean by opposite when you say opposite? Great question. So um, on your body, if you hold your arms straight out, yeah. like T-pose. Like, an, air <laughs> like yeah, an airplane? Both work. Um, that's opposite. So. Oh. Okay. Alternately arranged is like if you only had two oh. limbs, one leg on your left side, one arm on the right side. I see. So rather than the stems and leaves being staggered up and down the stem, yes. the the <laughs> the mint is kind of T-posing over and over and over again. Yes. Meaning that the leaves are like parallel with each other all the way across like... Yes and no. So if you look at it top down, it'll it'll go back and forth. So Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not all on the same axis. It flips axes each time. So do you goes did, do you happen to remember or know what the name of this mint is? Uh yeah, it's the Hori H O A R Y skull cap. It's a purple flower. Cool. Um, multiple flowers on spikes. It's gorgeous. Huh. Yeah. Um I posted it on my Instagram. I might repost it as a story because skull caps are just gorgeous. I'll have to show you a picture of it. I'm I've already learned so much about mint I, I, stuff. There's I a lot of them. Stuff I didn't even know. So yeah. well, yeah. This so is very cool. Marcus, um you've you've done a lot in your life. Um you are a voice actor. Yes. Um, a narrator. Yes. A tabletop role player, <laughs> a violently hospitable man. And my literal clone. <laughs> so um, I'm very, very excited to interview him, um, especially because of his nice woody baritone voice. Um, and about what we're interviewing today, which is your yard. My um, yard. Yes, your yard, um, which before was um, little speckles of grass with other um, low herbaceous plants mixed in and a garden in the back. 
and you have graciously tasked me to come and uh, wreck the shit out of it and rip it yeah. up and change it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I figured that uh, your background being what it is and my implicit trust in you overall that you wouldn't do anything untoward to the yard itself. Um, I pretty much wanted you to treat the yard as a blank canvas and for you to do whatever you wanted to it. Because as far as I'm concerned, the the yard can only be improved upon from its original state. Mm. And, and I'm sure we're going to get into this. It's changed dramatically in in quite a few ways and yeah uh, yeah i'm excited to talk about for, it. for better or worse yes yeah it's a learning process because full disclosure i've never done this explicitly before i know that yeah i know i know you haven't it's exciting but, but the, what what's scary what better way to learn than to just like have the land to work from period yeah you know yeah nobody's let me do this before and when when you offered it. I was like, okay, <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. So where do you want to start? Great question. Where I wanted to start was context. Every mm. great story needs context. Okay. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the history of the house that we're living in? Sure. sure. Yes. Excellent. Okay. So uh, this house is located in Painesville, Ohio. Uh, it was built in 1880. Where Where is Painesville, Ohio, in, in regards to Ohio? Painesville, Ohio is nestled up near Lake Erie. It is the capital of Lake County. Lake County is about half an hour east of Cleveland itself. Mm. So it's in the northeastern part of, of the state. Um, it's a small town. It's got about bet anywhere between 16,000 to 20,000 residents. Um, so this particular house is on a dead-end street. Uh, it is on West South Street, which is a weird name. Uh, it is the <laughs> western half of South Street, bizarro. Um, so adjacent to the property was a railroad track initially. Right. Decades ago. De um, decades, or was that like the 1880s? Good question. I I don't know when that right. when the tracks were ripped out, but, but it, they're they're ad directly adjacent to the property where it dead ends. There is now a nature trail, um, uh, managed by the Lake Metro Park system. It's unfortunately paved. I wish it wasn't paved, but right. Um, me and my childhood friends and my brother used to play down in. But what we what we still affectionately call the tracks because they used to be tracks. Um, yeah, and, and it kind of you kind of get that feeling a little bit walking through it. Yeah, it, it's kind of guiding you. Right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a it's still kind of like a railroad. Kind of yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, and it, it spans. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Not in just Painesville. Um, it ends in Painesville or starts, but it goes through several towns. Yes, doesn't it? several. Yeah. I think at least a couple. Southward, a couple counties heading south. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, I don't know the length of it off the top of my head, but it it stretches for quite a while, uh, quite a ways. But uh, you know, being adjacent to that, um, uh, you know, lush, forested kind of area, um, 
half of the property has a lot of vegetation, overhanging trees. Half shade. Shade. Yes. Yes. Lots of it. And um, because this house is of a certain age, <laughs> um, <laughs> there is still no uh, HVAC or, or native um, temperature control in the house. Um, up until two or three years ago, there were still single pane windows in this house yeah. from ages ago that no one decided to replace. Um, but fortunately, because of all the natural shade that covers most of the house itself, the temperature inside the house is usually about 10 degrees cooler than it is outside, unless heat starts I'm, baking it for a while. <laughs> I'm I'm very glad you brought that up yeah? because that is one of the biggest benefits, monetary benefits of trees Yeah, is they cool your house down. Yeah. Um, People complain about, well, my tree drops, you know, seeds, nuts, a lot of pollen, but it it gives you a lot back. If you can tolerate those seeds, nuts, they cool you down. Yeah, and, a bunch. Yeah. A bunch. And they're just very calming. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really lovely to not only hear and see um, the rain and the rustling of the leaves when it, when it's windy, mm. it's really, it's such a calming sound i i moved back from california about five years ago now and i didn't realize how much i missed the sound of those trees right. and the wind in the trees adjacent to my yeah. house um that mediterranean it, climate's a lot different than our uh <laughs> our our temperate uh, uh it is wet temperate area it here. is it is very much so um yeah. but so half of the house half of the house itself is shaded in that way it's a long shotgunny sort of um, uh, strangely shaped property. So beyond the house itself, the house is about fifty feet long, um, and I would guess there, there's about a third of an acre um, on the entire property itself. And beyond the house, in the back, um, when I moved here as a kid, I moved here in '87, I believe, when I was about nine around there but there used to be flower gardens and a garden proper back there when you guys moved in or was that planted by yeah okay, yeah wow. it, there there was a garden area a designated there was also a massive raspberry patch in the very very back of the property um that as a child i thought was just so unbelievably magical because there was this never ending onslaught of raspberries Every single summer, you could set your watch to um, about July 4th. Every single year is when these black raspberries would be overall ripened, and we would harvest them, and um, my mother would make jam out of them for the entire month, mm. and that syrupy, sweet raspberry smell would permeate the house, and yeah. um, it's... Those those memories uh, are just I hold very very dear to my heart. Um, it's a, it was such a beautiful thing to to have to be able to have homemade home cooked homegrown food from your own yard and having your parents use that yeah um, for sustenance on a regular basis. Both of my parents uh, had green thumbs, have green thumbs. My mother is my mother still with us. My father is not. Um, my mother uh, lives in Kentucky, and she still has a garden of her own. 
she grows strawberries down there and does the same thing with the jam to this day. And she still mails me jars and sends jars to people every summer. <laughs> and it's so lovely to, it's to get those. Yes. It's adorable. It's <laughs> lovely, yes. But yeah, the, so most of this property, um, especially the side yard, I believe due to the shade that's there, is very sandy soil. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context, too. Please. So the geological history of this area that we're sitting in right now um, is very sandy thanks to several glaciation events that mm. happened um, several thousand years ago. I think the last one was 10,000 years ago. And that brought in a lot of the sand um, and, and kicked it up to the surface here. It just kind of like, if you imagine a big snow plow, just snow plowed the sand into here. Really? Yep. And as you go south a little bit more towards Chagrin Falls, um, you'll see big boulders that were deposited there, 300 million year old pebble conglomerates. Hmm. Here, right next to Lake Erie, we, we got a lot of the sand, um, and that's why we have the amazing um, sand dunes up um, in Mentor Headlands, too. So our your soil here has great drainage. Yeah, it great, does. Great... Um, uh, nutrient content too. Um, it has a good mix of both. So it makes great growing soil, which huh. is why your parents were able to grow a lot of stuff. And so you, your parents didn't just grow raspberries and blackberries. What else was oh. in your backyard? Oh, Walk me wow. through that history. Oh, wow. Step um, back in time for us. Geez. Um, so my mother loved roses. She always had, um, Separate from everything else, closer to the house were um, small rose gardens. Mm. Um, my mother is Japanese and only five foot two, and the roses would typically be taller than her uh, <laughs> due to her love and care. Um, she would she would uh, grow them. There would be all sorts of colors of them, um, magenta and and like uh, a peachy color and white and red, and there were. Um, a sunset of roses yes. splashed across your landscape. Yes, 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 they were they were gorgeous. Um, beyond that, though, um, tr trying to imagine the backyard and moving from the house towards further back, there was an apple tree that was there for a very long time. I don't know what kind of apples they were, but we used to get a decent yield off of that single tree every year. My father took upon himself to plant hazelnut trees. There were a few of those back there. Uh, peach tree, cherry tree. Um, as for vegetables, we tried all sorts of uh, <laughs> veggies over time. Squash, cucumbers, muskmelons, um, mostly because melons are so easy to grow. Yeah, so especially so in simple. sandy soil. Yeah, and yeah. Th those things would just take off and um, my brother and I would be sick to death of squash-related <laughs> foods. For months in the fall. Um, but cucumbers, uh, regular bell peppers. Um, my father tried his best to grow um, subterranean plants. But for some strange reason, and this is something that I wanted to talk to you more about to wonder why this would be the case, that potatoes, carrots, radishes, anything that were, were to grow underground would be short and stubby instead of, of uh, 
I don't know what you would call it, like large or yeah. girthy or whatever. It yeah, would be. longer. Right. Yeah, just longer. It yeah, would, their it growth would, was stunted. They were they were stunted, and my father would try year after year, and he could never get a carrot that looked bigger than a thumb. It was strange. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Um, that's that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm probably gonna have to say this at the beginning of each and every podcast now, just as a disclaimer. I am not an expert on any of this. <laughs> this podcast and my Instagram and everything is here to show the growth of someone's passion, mm. to walk along somebody as they're learning. Um, so from what I know right now, probably um, especially with the geological history. Of this area, there's probably a lot of small rocks in the soil. Mm. And when I was removing your um, spoiler, the hazelnuts died. A, a good chunk of them died. Yes. Um, when I was removing those, there were good chunks of little rocks in the soil, uh. too. That may have had a part of it. Maybe he planted them at the wrong time. Likely not from the stories you told me of Ralph, though. He was pretty meticulous. Yes. So. Yes. Um, maybe there was some diseases that were affecting them, but if it was like carrots, um, you know, parsnips, um, potatoes, all of the root vegetables, yes, then, root vegetables, then they, they, those are different plant families. They wouldn't be affected all by the same disease. So right. my guess is probably that there was just either rocks or some animal was eating them, but under underground yeah yeah groundhogs and um gophers huh. will, especially sweet potatoes they'll decimate sweet potatoes really yeah my, i tried growing sweet potatoes for my dad as a kid sandy soil yeah as well and uh we never got a yield off of them they ate them all gone. yeah that's i'm sorry to hear that yeah, yeah. well it it happens there it's are part of gardening there i do i do remember the critters um growing up your dad hated squirrels with a passion. With a passion. With a passion. Now this is this is tangential to our conversation, but I <laughs> go please tell this. Uh, well, uh my father passed away uh July of twenty twenty, and one of the things I found um and I also he told me verbatim stories of his ardent hatred <laughs> of squirrels because they would always go after his crops and they would be he would be so frustrated. Due to all of his labor and effort and money and time mm -hmm. and, you know, nurturing over these plants for ages. And these damn squirrels would just come out of nowhere and come out of the <laughs> forested side of the yard and go, ha and jump down and just, like, grab them and eat them and take them away. Um, he would have, at the ready, for a while, he had uh, his twenty two rifle that he would just... <laughs> shoot in the backyard in a residential area right. without any right. pause or or uh the, you know, your, qualms. your backyard butts up against another backyard it does which is a few hundred feet away. yes yes not far right. at all you can clearly see another which, couple houses your father is is born and raised in america and yes yes it's a very american thing to do <laughs> yeah how how did how did alco feel about that um I think this this was a habit of his that came about um, long after okay. she had left, okay. long after gotcha. the divorce. So, but he had changed his tactics from the twenty two rifle because of the usage of the bullets <laughs> themselves. 
and being an expense to getting a pellet air rifle. Oh, those and poor squirrels. That pellet air rifle will be at the ready, at the back door, <laughs> ready to go. Whenever he saw a squirrel, he would just, I would be working in the, in the dining room, in, in the one we're sitting in right now, and he would just like, he would just grab the gun and pop off a few, open up the door just to chase the squirrels away. From his nut trees because he was <laughs> because of his frustration. I also found these hilariously, crudely, cartoonishly cut out cutouts of squirrels made out of cardboard that he would use as target <laughs> practice. So the squirrels were the bane of his existence. Yes, yeah. yeah. There, there was no greater enemy to him I'm, than the squirrels that, that ran around this property. I'm sure many uh, many gardeners feel similar things about um, squirrels, deer, rabbits, especially groundhogs, um, gophers. But, you know, when you told me that story, I, I, I just, it's so funny. Um <laughs> I just imagine him just sitting like, you know, like like a stereotype of a a man out out west protecting his property on sitting on his on his porch in a rocking chair with a little straw hat, just holding the gun, just waiting for someone to just try him and just waiting for one of those squirrels to make his day. To put an image into your heads, this man was compulsively clad in suspenders. As oh, well. that makes it better. He always wore suspenders of some color or kind, um, whether they were crossed in the back or not. Always wearing suspenders. He had, uh, you know, pot belly. Usually wore jeans. Almost always a button-up shirt. <laughs> no matter what the weather would be like, the man almost never wore t-shirts for some reason. So you can imagine this, uh, you know, gray-haired, bearded fella who could probably kind of pass between a Santa Claus or an Amish individual just waiting with bated breath <laughs> to grab his gun and shoot the hell out of whatever squirrel was attacking his garden. Right. I let let me let me say that I don't condone the shooting of wildlife um to to hurt them and chase them off your property. There's different ways to do it, but you know uh, the, these stories honestly just endear him to me more. I never met him, but he, it all the stories combined, he, it's just, he was a meticulous man, and he was proud over the things that, that he, he, he did. Yeah. Um, he was a very proud man, and from all the stories he told me and all of the plants that I that survived, I could tell it was something that meant a lot to him. Yes, and absolutely. And still survives in the landscape. There's still one hazelnut tree and just the other day there are still hazelnuts on it that's miraculous because even without cross-pollination or anything else like that or do they not need that they they do they do so there was um um some catkins on the dying trees that were left as a last resort to Mm. get their seeds out Mm -hmm. um which catkins are a type of flower that hazelnut trees produce do those look are those those things that look like kind of like tassels yep those are catkins. okay those are their flowers gotcha yep. awesome. so there's a few of them um i'm still planning on planting out some hazelnuts because hazelnuts are great and you can make your own nutella in the future yeah, yeah. or you know just eat them raw like i love so yeah. <laughs> so all right that was wonderful um my next question for you marcus um with all of that history in mind and living through all of that how has that 
influenced you um, with your, your, just your relationship with gardening, with, with yards. Um, it doesn't seem like that's like your passion in life. I mean, you're a voice actor now. Yeah. Well, but how, how has that stuck with you? How, that, what, how did that change you as a person? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, after, after I graduated college in 2000, um, I moved to St. Louis and I lived there for six years. After that, I moved to the Bay Area. Um, so most of my young adult life was spent in apartments mm. in major cities with no yard and mm. no gardening space. And I didn't even have houseplants. Um, wow. But, you know, like, like I mentioned before, having parents that focused on cooking fresh food almost every single day from scratch, which is something right. both of my parents did on the regular. Um, we hardly had any microwave meals or instant food or packaged food or canned food. It would be very, very rare when we had those things. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. My father was a blue-collar machine shop worker for the majority of his life. Um, and, you know, my, sometimes my mother would pick up odd jobs here and there, but we always had fresh food all the time. And the garden influenced that back and forth. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is having that food ready for you. Mm. Uh, even like there's so much labor involved with it. Yeah. And. It's I a, got to see the labor in my own yard, yeah. and I remember my parents would. I remember one one uh, summer um, in the baking heat. My dad was like, "I'll give you guys a penny of weed to pull the weeds," and we were like, "Oh my god, that's so much money! I can't wait!" And we were just like ripping them out and it's like counting them and having our own baskets of weeds <laughs> one at a time. We thought we were going to be millionaires, obviously, because there's right. so so many weeds, many weeds, endless weeds, endless, endless. It's like my dad probably regretted it after he said <laughs> he's like, "Oh, those kids." Uh, well, he got us to work, right? Yeah, but, got you out in the garden, right? But to but to labor in the soil, um, and see the 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 literal fruits of that labor, and to let it go from the labor to your table, I think was the biggest influence for me. In terms of like, not as much the gardening aspect of it, but but the the consuming aspect of it. Like, yes. in terms of diet and where our food comes from, and and um, it's especially in the modernized yes. um, industrial world. Yes. it is a labor of love. It is. Yes. It is. There's there's so cooking much, it especially it's like having a fresh salad. Yeah, out of your own garden. There's like. There's a certain amount of pride that goes into that, even though you may have have spent more money than it would take versus buying those very same ingredients from the store. Potentially. It's, it's a level of self-sufficiency yeah. and pride and work that was ancillary to all the other labor my parents were, were doing with their regular jobs and the housework and everything else. That was another layer of work that they that they slaved over um and it's very very difficult for me to forget that and and now that i'm living in this house again um i want to honor that 
and keep the yard and the garden going. And I could not do that without your help. Well, I'm very happy to help because yeah. I grew up gardening with my dad um, in the southwestern part of Ohio. It's in the Miami Valley, a little village called Waynesville, Ohio. And um, I remember growing up there and as a little kid, um, there were tall trees in a U-shape on this sloped hill. Um, and it just felt like a giant bowl, like you were sitting mm. in the middle of a giant bowl. Oh, cool. Yes. And the blue skies in summer, just I remember the bluest of blue in the garden back there um, was like a, a little haven. There were snap peas that you could just pick off, throw in your mouth, strawberries. You could just throw them in your mouth. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it, it to me at least, and I know a lot of people who grow their own food say this as well, it tastes a lot better when it's homegrown. It does. Whether that it is... really does. Whether that's like, you know actually because there's more sugars in it um, or whatever, or because it's a pride thing, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's, it's probably both. Yeah. It's probably a huge combination of both of those things. Yeah. And we bonded um, pretty quickly after meeting each other over our shared love of being foodies. Yes. We both love yes. food. We both love good food. Um, and so... And we both like to cook. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so having something back there is great. And um, I personally have never been to Japan. Um, so from what I know, though, they share a lot of the same passion that we do for for their food. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's a labor of love. Yes. Um, so your mother, uh, from what I've heard, has, has made a lot of great food for you growing up. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. There's, there's just so much. Yeah. Japanese cuisine, obviously, but, you know... My my mother moved to this country when she was in her mid-30s, and my American grandmother taught her how to make American food, mm -hmm. and my mom would go whole hog on, on creating as much of those things from scratch as possible. When we had pizza, for example, right. she would make the dough and, you know, like use a base of, of maybe sauce or canned tomatoes or even make her own sauce for you know, things like that. And then, you know, source the toppings from the rest of the grocery store and stuff. But like as, as much of, as much of the labor that could be handmade or hand done um, rather than prepackaged or frozen or instant or simple out of the grocery store itself as a product, she would endeavor to do. And you know, my, my friends and, and neighbors, you know, uh, would fight for a, a chance <laughs> to eat and sit at the table for any simple dinner that you could possibly think of, whether it be burgers or sushi or tempura or, huh. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and those, and those things to this day, um, my brother and his girlfriend are both amazing in the kitchen. Oh, like. Their, their skills are, I, I'm sure, far beyond my own at this point, but they they took that that joy and, and skill of cooking to another level. And um, Stephanie, my brother's girlfriend, makes these amazing uh, Asian breads and mm. pastries from scratch. And she sources all of these perfect ingredients and custards and red bean and uh, mochi and uh, green tea. Uh, all of it, it there it's so it's it's great for me to see 
their their legacy and the things that they've taught us uh, continue and spread out and move on. It's really great. And it all started from a garden as kids. Yeah, I think yeah. I think I think that is the honest root of it. Um, I can't really imagine it would have evolved any other way. Not only like because my parents got together at it at you know my dad was forty. My mom was 35 when they married. They got married pretty late in life. And then they had us. And they come from a way older generation where they grew up, um, you know, in very, very cash-strapped uh, situations, both of them, and had to work off the land for food a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, that that work ethic and that, need was ingrained in them from a young age and they they've carried it with them through their whole lives wow yeah yeah pretty amazing passing the torch passing the torch to both of us still carrying it well that was awesome that was <laughs> all i could ask for more so my next question for you marcus and yeah. this is one of my favorite questions to ask people so what well we okay we've been we've been talking about plants for a while now because that's my passion. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a little too much. I find myself droning on about plants to a lot of people. <laughs> and I can see their eyes glaze over. But I don't know if it's happened yet. But I've kind of rubbed off on you a little bit. Your knowledge has increased a mm. little bit. But what would you say your knowledge right now, knowledge level is on plants? Oh, How boy. much do you know about them? Where's your confidence level? Um. Well, plants and, and and aside from that, gardening and taking care of plants as well. My environmental science classes were were um, so fascinating to me in high school. Out of any other science class that I took, I was usually in the quote unquote advanced class, <laughs> whatever. Just uh, I think that's it's silly. <laughs> it should have stood for. Um, Anxious instead of advanced. <laughs> Anxious placement. Like, oh, you want some pressure, kiddo? All right. Here we go. Let's pile it on. It's not going to hurt you. Um, but my environmental science classes were fascinating, um, along with the, the, general, the general biology of a plant itself and what it does in terms of creating energy and, and how it's able to grow. Um, I know about the general um, nutrients that are necessary for plant growth. You need nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, okay. right? Yeah, you got it. Those are the big three. Those are the big three. So, um, and you'll see those you'll see those printed on the side of almost every single nutrient bag in a, in mm -hmm. a garden section because plants need those uh, first and foremost to grow and, and be healthy and, and um, to build, you know, strong roots strong stalks, and thus, you know, a strong um, plant that won't get knocked over by the wind or the rain or, or strong weather and be able to stand on its own and, and be verdant and keep growing. Um, what else do I know about plants in general? I mean, you don't have to, like, encyclopedia everything you know, but, like, <laughs> like give me, like, a, a, you know, if you were to rank yourself from 1 to 10, let's say, of okay. one being uh is a plant um that four-legged thing to 10 being <laughs> i know so much about plants sometimes i can't differentiate myself from them 
Um, well, I would I would have to tag myself as a six, probably. A six? Oh. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I'm very happy you said six, because it is time to test your knowledge, my friend. <laughs> okay. Um, and a little pop quiz, a game I'm calling Native or Nah. Okay. In this game, you, Marcus, are going to have to tell me whether the plant I show you is native or not. Okay. So I will show you a picture and I'll give you its common name. Um, and if the common name includes, uh, you know, something that tells you of its geographic region, obviously, I'm not going to tell you that. Well, and when you say native, how native are we talking? Ohio. Because, just, the, just the state of Ohio itself. Yes, because that is the area that we live in right now. Okay. So I will, I will give you the common name. Then I want you for the listeners, to describe in your best words, um, however long or short you want to make it, what you are seeing today. <laughs> so they can picture it as well. Use as many words oh as you boy. would like. Okay. If you're confident on what something means, please use it. Sure. <laughs> so I'm going to start out with this first one. This plant here is called Multiflora Rose. Multiflora Rose. Well, um, to me, it looks like a plant with multiple bunches of white flowers. Um, it almost looks like a shrub or a bush from the image that you're showing me. I, it's difficult to tell how, how many different plants are present or whether it's one single plant. Yeah, the, uh, the, the image quality is pretty poor. Um, I slapped this together in like an hour and a half. <laughs> and if, if I was using my own photos, they look better, but... You get what you get, Marcus. I think I've seen these before. Okay. So, native or nah? Uh, I would say nah. Nah. Okay. Multiflora rose is not from Ohio. It is native to Eastern Asia. Whoa. Um, and a lot of it came from Japan as well. No kidding. And right now in the Midwest, it is a notorious noxious weed. Oh. And woody understory oh so yeah. this is a big no-no like we don't want this around we are desperately trying to get rid of it but roses are very very good at maintaining themselves in an environment and uh they have huge thorns and crowd out um mm. other other bushes shrubs and herbaceous plants and they are they just form thistles miles wide not literally but funny that they have the name of a rose they don't look like any rose I've ever seen. Ah, and yeah, uh, why? Why is that? Great, great question. Oh my gosh! So, roses, um, what we think of as roses, are a horticultural adaptation. Mm. By that I mean we we, as, we did this. We we changed it. Yes, did we? Yes, we bred for it. You bastards! <laughs> so, yes, you bastards. Um, the the progenitor roses have five petals. The, the the wild type roses huh. have five petals. Okay, that is pretty much shared across all of the family. I see. And and this does too. This does too. Yes. And so what we did was we took that, and we took the gene or genes that controlled the five petal productions and multiplied it pretty much. Oh. So it it, it has you forced it to have more petals. Yes. And that's where our layered roses come from. I see. So 
a lot of people who aren't aware of that will be like, that looks nothing like a rose. Right. Which yes. is why I was confused at that as soon as you told me the name. I'm like, I, no. That's not a rose. That's You're not, lying to me. That is not a rose. Um, that is not a, not, not a rose I recognize. Okay. Well, you know, you still got the question right, though. So Sweet. Ding! One out of ten. One point for me. Next. All right. This plant is called Echinacea. That's a generic epithet. Um, sometimes used as its common name, but it's also called purple cone flower. Go ahead, describe what you see. Purple cone flowers. These kind of look like uh, a kind of a cross between a, uh, a sunflower and I don't want to say a daffodil. Um, dandelion. No? Okay. Um, it's got it's got long petals, um, and what looks like a really large like button central structure. Uh, out of which the petals all grow from. Um, yeah, they remind me a lot of a sunflower, but they are pink instead of yellow. Um, hmm. I believe these are natives. Oh, you're saying you're going with it. Okay. Yeah, I think all these right. are natives. So you would be correct. Yes. Purple coneflowers are a wonderful native of Ohio That's in the Midwestern region. That's what I thought. They make great tea, um, are traditionally used as a medicine. We've recently found maybe that's not as useful as it was, but it still is nice when you have a sore throat. It's very calming. Hmm. Um, and it is a very, very loved plant by bumblebees, the big fuzzy butt guys. Right. Yes. Of course. So you got it exactly correct. Um, it is in the plant family Asteraceae, which is the sunflower family. Oh, I was doggone close. Damn close, my friend. Ding! Two out of ten. Two out of two. Oh, right. Yeah, two out of two, two out of ten, whatever you want to count it as. <laughs> Next. All right. This plant here is called Little Blue Stem. Go ahead, describe what you've what you seen. Little Blue Stem. Um, it kind of looks like... Uh, hmm. It looks like just a long, spiky tuft... <laughs> uh of a bush kind of it looks like a a, a giant singular tuft of grass mm. um if you were to take bart simpson's hair and then turn <laughs> it into a plant okay that's kind of what it looks like but it's really difficult for me to tell the scale of this yeah it's about it can get a, like three feet tall that's maybe. what I, yeah Two i think three feet tall i figured i was there gonna a, say about waist high or knee high at minimum so there they, is a big blue stem these do not look small by any by any means um so native or not oh this is tough to me this doesn't i don't oh this is hard like to me i, I would imagine this would this would this would fall into the category of the first one in that this doesn't belong in Ohio, but it's 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 difficult to get rid of um, because of its size and scale. I'm going to go with non-native. Non-native. Okay, so Little Blue Stem is native to Ohio. Dang it! Yes, it is a gorgeous grass that I am going to plant on your property no, at some no point. Okay. Yeah, it's That's a grass? It's a grass. Yeah. Whoa. Yep. It's uh, you, you described it as grass-like, so you're picking up on it. Hmm. So the reason you're surprised is the grass is because what what are the grasses we usually we usually see? Crabgrass. Crabgrass. Um, yeah. What's what's the standard long grass's name? I don't even know what. That's it's a good called. question. Yeah. We'll, what's we'll, it called? We'll put a stamp on that. Okay. We'll, we'll wait for all that. All right. All right. 
But yeah, this is a grass. A lot of grasses to this area um, grow to be bushier. They mm. don't mat out like turf grasses do. Oh. They kind of form clumps. Um, it's just how they grow. And this plant here is uh, a larval host to a lot of native moths, a lot of skipper moths. Hmm. So a lot of them like this plant to raise their young on. So Oh, I see. You, if you plant this in your yard, you'll probably get a lot of per, little tiny brown, gray, unassuming moths, but they're still kind of nice to have around. I think moths are cute. So that's little blue stem. Um, you are at two out of ten, but don't uh, don't stress. You have... Do not despair. There are more. There are more. Okay. Next. <laughs> this is Kentucky bluegrass. Go ahead. Describe what you see. It looks like a standard lawn to me um yeah this is probably a giant trick question isn't it uh i i don't know man damn it kentucky it's, bluegrass stop it's too obvious i can't <laughs> it's like bait like oh this is so difficult oh, i'm gonna say it's not native not well native. i'm gonna say no i'm gonna say it's native just because of the misnomer because ohio and kentucky are so geographically close to one another Okay. All right. So Kentucky bluegrass is not native. It is not native to Ohio <laughs> nor Kentucky. Oh. Yeah. It's native originally to uh, almost all Europe, Northern Asia, like the Russia region, I'm pretty sure. What? Yeah. Yep. And it was originally described by Carl Linnaeus, famous taxonomist. Oh, yeah. In his uh, 1753 book, Species Plen uh Oh, my gosh. Plantarum, species plantarum, right. did not prep that, should have. So yeah, we brought it over. Um, it was already popular in Europe when, uh, as I talked earlier in this podcast, uh, people who liked their lawns um, brought it over because it made a great lawn and they could play bowling, lawn bowling on it and all that. Huh. And in Kentucky, uh, it really, really got popularized there, especially for the horses, racetracks, stuff like that. Um, and it blew up from there. And that's why here in the West, it's called Kentucky bluegrass. Crazy. Even yep. though it's not even native nope. to the continent itself nope. originally. Nope. Crazy. It's crazy. A lot of you probably have this on your lawns. Yes. Rip it out. Yep. Okay. So that is two out of, uh, two out of four. Yeah. Yeah. Two out of four. It's okay. This is not a shaming thing. <laughs> If you get if you got zero out of ten, I'd still give you a golden star. I'm still learning stuff, which yeah, is the important part. And it's fun for me. That's the most <laughs> important part. Okay, this next plant. These are gorgeous. Yes. Cardinal flower. Go ahead and describe what you see. These are very long stalks with what look like almost red feather-like leaves coming off of them in small groups of three or five. It's very difficult for me to tell. Um, yeah, low image quality. But uh, I would imagine these would be nearly as tall as a person, maybe? Uh, they, for some reason, they... Oh, this is tough, too. Here, let this, me get you... I'm pulling up a, a, a fresh image for you. This almost looks like something that would grow in... in to, to my imagination, due to how it looks, like it would grow in marshland, not... A marshland? Why do you say that? I don't know. It's a gut feeling. It's a gut feeling. Um, not that I know anything about what should grow in a marsh, but I, I, 
I can imagine something like this growing in like bog bog like uh, environments. Oh, I see. Wow, those are beautiful, striking. They are um, beautiful. Yeah. So, the, the red the red is is a very deep, rich cardinal red. It's it's aptly named. Um, so native or nah? That's a toughie too. I'm gonna go with native. Cardinal flowers are native. Ah, they yes. are one of my favorite natives. They are one of my favorite gen- uh, genuses of plants, the lobelias. Um, they, funnily enough, are close-ish related to sunflowers. What? The Asteraceae These? family. Well, they yeah, look nothing. They are in like the plant order Asterales, which is the sunflower order. So they have taken that flower morphology and gone on a completely different path. Wow. If you were to look at this and think, what the hell is pollinating it? What would you say? What does it look like might be pollinating it? Oh. Do you want the other photo back or? Yeah. Um, it's very tough to tell. I, I wouldn't even know where the, where the source of the, I don't know. Good question. Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, why why do you say that? Butterflies, dragonflies, the sun, uh, um, creatures with really really long beaks um, that can get into small yeah deep crevices. Right, you're, you're picking up on it because yeah. it, it looks like there's like a landing ish platform or a banner that invites them in, yeah. and there, there's this long tube that dips in. Yes, that yeah. little hooked thing on the top is their anthers and their stigma. Mm, so really, yes. The hummingbirds, especially, yeah, love this plant, full of nectar, and they will dip their little um, beaks and long tongues down into that tube and slurp up nectar, and their head gets dusted with that nectar. <laughs> so, genius, yeah, genius, love, love that plant. Where, where, are so cool. where, since these are native to Ohio, where in the world can I find them in the wild? Would you Ooh, imagine right next to waterways? You hit it right on the head. They love being next to water. Got it. I don't know where you pulled that from, but you just, you got it immediately. Yeah, I don't know why I thought that either, but... You, you know what? I'm going to give you an extra point for that one. <laughs> that one was worth two. So you got, you're at four now. Yes. Four out of five. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Next. This is called... Purging Buckthorn by one name. I'll give you the other common name after you guess it. Purging buckthorn. Um, well, these look like they have they have clusters of what look like berries um, along their stems and leaves growing out from those clusters. It's difficult for me to tell if those are along a single stem yeah, or branch here in this image or not. The, the berries kind of look like uh, like, I don't know. They kind of look like olives. They're really, really dark, mm. um, but not. They're spherical instead of oblong. Um, Unfortunately, most of the photos of this plant is either really up close on this anatomy or really far away. Mm. It is a bush. And, it's a bush. Or a very small tree. Okay, okay. That's what I was thinking. Um, so, mm. good description. Native or nah? I'm going to say nah on this one. 
All right. So you said nah, and you would be correct. Because I've never seen one anywhere. <laughs> that surprises me because it is a very terrible invasive. Is it? Yes. Is it invasive here in the state? Oh, very bad. Mm. Originally native to Northern Africa, Western Asia, Europe. Um, European buckthorn is its other common mm. name. Outcompetes native um, shrubs, trees, herbaceous plants. Are they thorny? Um, I, I think they have, they can have small thorns. Um, I personally don't interact with them too much. I see them and I just move away. So I haven't studied them up close. Okay, quick aside. So I actually did look it up. Buckthorns do have some thorns on them, depending on the species or cultivar. Um, and they usually have them at the end of the twigs. It's a little sharp thorn-like protrusion. Now you know. What are what are the berries like on these things? Do you have any idea what the flavor profile of um, is, or whether or not they are berries? I'm pretty I'm sure at? they. Yeah, they, they are. I'm pretty sure they cause um, they're an expul expulsant expulsant. They they cause you to lose your bowel. Oh. Yeah, ew. and other animals to do that. It's uh, I think it's a dispersal strategy. Right, right. That would make yeah. sense. Um, they they outcompete other plants by leafing out. Um, really quickly. Huh. Um, shading out, growing quicker than other plants, um, and competing that with roots. That makes it pretty deadly then yeah. to other yes. native plants. Yes. Not only, oh, wow. So not only do they outgrow other plants in the local vicinity, but the berries, as you mentioned, are like... Super spread. Super spreaders they, because they yes. pass through the digestive system or whatever, eats them rapidly. <sighs> yep. And, uh, and it goes from there. That's yep. fascinating. Okay. So five out of six... Next, this is Blazing Star. Oof. Uh, so these are um, long stalks of individual-looking flowers to me. Um, the leaf structures are very thin. Um, they kind of look like uh, ferns, <laughs> sort of. Um, at least the leaf structure to me in, in, the, in the bottom portions as the plant reaches the the um, end of the stem, there are what look like thistly kind of purple flowers mm. on the end of them. Um, this is a toughie. I don't... Yeah, native or not. Nah. Jeez. I'm going to go with native for these guys. Native. Yeah. Okay. Blazing Star is native. <laughs> they are in the... Plant family Asteraceae, which is Asters. sunflowers. Oh, yep. sunflowers still. Yep, aster sunflowers, whatever you want to call them. Um, they are closely related to another native called bone sets, which I'm not expecting anybody to know. I didn't know them until recently. And they're a little weird looking, but gorgeous plants. Hmm. They um, are really pretty. Yes, they are a very, very common ornamental plant in this area. Hmm. Um, its genus name is Leatris. You'll probably see it sold as that as well. Um, bees love it as well. I was about to mention bees would probably be the primary pollinator for this thing, wouldn't it? Maybe yeah. about two feet tall. Yeah, max. yeah. Yeah. And these, it just has a whole bunch of clusters of these purple fuchsia pink spikes. Of, yeah, they're yeah. very ornamental. They're gorgeous looking. Yes. Another thing I'm probably going to plant. They are in bloom right now. Oh, really? So, yes. I'm hoping to see them this when I go This late out. in the season, not so much in springtime, but like oh. summer. Yep. This is a summer plant. Huh. All right. Next. So you are at what? Six out of seven? I think. Yeah. All right. This one is purple loose strife. This kind of 
has some similarities to the previous plant <laughs> in terms of its long um, stems and stalks kind of with purple flowers growing uh, on them or all the way up the stalk. However, I'm seeing in this in these images I'm seeing less leaves. Although it's kind of hard to tell with the image, I don't, I can't. Yeah, tell those, those are, are the thin guys. Okay, base. okay. So this kind of looks similar to the previous plant in a lot of ways. Native or not? Ooh, that's a tough one. Seeing these two back to back. Um, because I ain't no dummy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this one's non-native. Because you're no dummy, you would be correct. <laughs> Marcus, you get another gold star. Yes. So, yeah, this purple loose strife is a very, very noxious invasive. Is it? it? Yeah, it's really is bad. Is it an aster as well? Because um, it looks so doggone close uh, to the previous one. It's in the family Lithraceae. Um, I don't remember the order, so let me double check that real quick. Sure. Um, but anyways, while I'm looking that up, um, this was originally a garden ornamental brought from where uh yeah that's a great question probably europe again huh probably europe somewhere around there they're pretty uh i think some of it's africa hmm um let me look up the specific plant it's so, just i'm i'm staggered at the striking similarity between these two but yeah. seeing them back to back you would yeah. you would think that they were of the same right genus you know at the very minimum when when the, I'm down to their color, their structure, everything. When I'm driving along the side of the road this time of the year, I keep seeing them. I'm like, oh, the actress. No, uh, damn it. Um, so, yeah. So these are these fool you. <laughs> they're these thinking they're you. the other plant. Yeah. These are from Europe, Asia, Northwest Africa, and southeastern Australia. Everywhere but here. Yes, everywhere but here. <laughs> their flowers. Um, here's a little up up close. About six petals. They're oh, a little yeah. crinkly. Huh. These guys are terribly invasive because they just outcompete everything um, on the herbaceous side. They suck up so much water that they can they can cause waterways to reduce in flow. Like, Whoa! Yeah! Yeah! Wow. Yeah! That's terrible. And they were originally brought over here as a popular garden plant, and also because beekeepers use them for their honey production, which honeybees uh. are also non-native. So huh. doubly is bad. Interesting. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And they are, um, if you've ever heard what a, 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 a type of plant called myrtle, and mm -hmm. they are related to myrtles. And if you zoom out even more, um, they are in the clade of plants called rosids. All the way back when roses and this plant diverged, they shared a common ancestor. Crazy. Yeah. Huh. Weird. Don't look anything like roses. Wow. Okay. So, you are now at 7 out of 8. Next one. This is called Button Bush. These look like they're from another planet. Um, That's what Cassie said. <laughs> they, wow. they really look alien. They look... They they unfortunately look like viruses. Um, oh. <laughs> due to yeah, like, I see it. They look like... They look like round balls with a bunch of spikes on the ends of them. Um, they are very, very light in color. I can't tell with the with the image well, here. They're like a with yellow tips, cream, yeah, yeah. white cream color um, kind of flowers. Uh, is this a bush? Yeah, it, yeah. It can get a, f a few feet tall. I think okay. some of them can get pretty large, five feet if you care for it. I have never seen these before in my life. 
I do not recognize them. That does not mean that they're not native to mm. Ohio, though. This is a really tough one. Mm. Um, uh, I'm going to have to guess at this. Not that I haven't done that before. But <laughs> I'm going to say this weirdo is a native to our state. You would be correct. <laughs> Cephalanthus occidentalis is one of my favorite plants. Um, those are just clusters of little tiny flowers that explode in these pom-pom fireworks of white. Weird. Yes. Um, so this image that I'm looking at right now, what what part of their growth stage is this? This flowering. That's those are the clusters of flowers. Strange. Yes. Strange. Bees go fanatical for them yeah yes they are just so many so many different food sources all on one plant and they they just are a delight to see um they really do look like little fuzzy pom-poms like if you went to the craft store and got those little white balls that the little like bits of plastic yeah 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 it looks they look like cat toys yes (laughs) stuck in a tree (laughs) these guys are in the coffee family rubiaceae weird yep and they are an indicator species for wetland sites. If this plant is here, huh. it's generally a pretty good site. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. Um, I found this one here um, in uh, the unfortunately named Indian Point uh, area just south of here. Huh. Uh, so this is, a, this is a photo you took? No. No, okay. No. But you've seen them locally. Yes. The yourself. photo I took was a little less... Um, zoomed out and it was just mostly on the flowers on the flower itself um but the flowers themselves are gorgeous and yeah it, it was sitting next uh it was near a cardinal flower too oh I wow i found them on the same day wow Fantastic. what a what a yeah that's a that's a great get yeah both of those back to back okay so that is now in eight out of nine yeah yeah all right last one tartarian honeysuckle Oh, geez. These look very familiar. Um, uh, that's good. 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 They, these seem like they would be ornamentals that would be in people's yards, um, you know, clustered in front. They are purple flowers that are long when they're closed. They open up into what is lit, like a four, four petals in each with the, the stamens in the middle. Um, long yellow stamens, as a matter of fact. Hmm. Uh, almost looks like a shrub. Yeah, it is. Um, Native or not, Marcus? Yeah. Final one. I've 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 seen these, but I don't know if they're native. That's a really good question. Oh um, man, they're really pretty though, and I can understand the yeah. appeal. Um, I'm gonna go. With non-native for this one. Non-native. Mm-hmm. Final question. Yep. Going on non-native. Yep. You got it. <laughs> yeah, Tartarian honeysuckle. The common name comes from Tartarus, from Greek mythology. It is native to Siberia. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. Eastern Eastern Asia and mostly China. So like rocky tundra? Is where it's from? Uh, a bunch of different areas. Yeah? Yeah. It's a, this plant is a fighter. Mm. Yeah, it's a fighter. Um, it was brought over initially as many invasives, um, ornamental. And um, this plant is is really bad, like other honeysuckles. Like the... Um, oh, I can't remember the other main honeysuckle that everybody loves that I hate. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Um, this These plants 
do something called allelopathy. I'll say that one more time because I uh, slurred it. Allelopathy. Allelopathy? Allelopathy. Meaning they produce compounds in their roots that are are like when you play D&D, if you do either the blast spell or if you do something that um, hurts them. I can't think of a spell right now that uh, that detracts from from somebody else. So they can either do that in some plants, help, or they can hurt other plants. This one puts growth regulators out into the soil. Stop no. seeds from germinating. Stun- How? It's a compound that they produce in their roots. And it just it shoots it out into the soil. And it stops plants from growing as quickly. Uh, makes them leggy. It kind of like mutes other plants' ability to grow. Yes. So it can overtake. Yes. A- advantageously. Yes. That is pretty insidious way to keep growing. Yes. That is amazing. And that's why honeysuckles are so terrible for... Diversity. Yeah. Yeah. My invasive species professor was studying uh, honeysuckles and how sites recover, specifically with their allelopathic chemicals in the soil. Wow. So you did a damn good job. Nine out of ten points with one extra point thrown in because (laughs) so impressed. Marcus, fantastic job. Thanks. That was fun. Yeah, I I thought of it on uh, my work route today. So I, I did all of that because I wanted to talk about some plants that were commonly planted out here in ornamental gardens and some of the other ones. And you noticed that it was kind of hard to tell. I mean, they all look kind of pretty in a way. Sure. Yeah. Like purple and pink were a very common color mm-hmm. to choose as as part of the ornamental, you know, Landscape. milieu yeah. landscaping. Sure. So... Why I'm talking about all of this with you is... Why are you talking about all of this with me? I, I am trying desperately to turn your yard into a native wildlife garden. So, native wildlife gardens. I've talked to you about it before. Or native wildlife habitats. They are meant to support native wildlife. Yes. Because all of those non-native plants generally don't provide much habitat or food for our native fauna. They just don't. The natives do. And they all are housed for certain things. Like, that, like I told you, the little blue stem is a larval host to so many moths. Mm-hmm. So I am trying to focus on getting rid of turf lawns and replacing it with plants that beautify the landscape, make it less drab, and help support our declining faunal um, populations, and so I've I've started to do that. Do you do you happen to know the four basic needs um, for getting certified as a native wildlife habitat? I do not. Okay, could you wager some guesses? Four of them. Um, what do you need for a complete habitat? You would probably need to have a complete. Uh, He's sort a, of like a closed system biome in that you would need... Think think basic. Basic needs. Well, you would need um, a water source. That's one. Um, you would need... Um... <laughs> what do you need? Basics. Do... I need sunlight. <laughs> I need food. They need food? Sunlight? How they Nutrients. get food? Yeah, so they need food. They need water. Yeah. They need places for shelter, places to hide. 
They need, lastly, places to raise their young. This is all Mm. things that humans need. Mm -hmm. We all need shelter. We all need food. We all need water. What do you mean by shelter for plants? Well, okay, so the the plants are the shelter for for fauna for animals. Oh, 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 right, right. Um, shelter for plants is also appropriate habitats where there's not invasive honeysuckles, buckthorns, purple loosestrife, stuff like that. Right. So by all of those invasives that you mentioned and how easily they can take over an entire entire area plot of land yeah. or area. Wow, that's like those. Those evolutionary advantages are kind of crazy for them to allow to propagate. Yeah. And yeah. and to be able to recognize and stop those from growing before they get out of hand and choke out all the other wildlife that could be beneficial or, or plant life that could be beneficial for other wildlife to come mm-hmm. into the area. Yeah, I can understand how... Um, how critical that is. Yeah, and I, I personally think it's a moral duty of, of mm. us. You know, you don't have to get rid of all of your exotic, you know, ornamentals that you like. If you want to keep um, a non-native rose here, just, you know, take care of it. Make sure it doesn't spread. Get out of hand best you can. Plant some other native species as well. I've seen so many native wildlife gardens that do have some non-natives mixed in. Mm. You're just, but a controlled amount. But a and, controlled and, amount. You know, yeah. 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 So you need to be able to provide those sources for these animals. So examples of of of, of food, water, shelter, and places to raise young are for like food, native trees and shrubs, or herbs for birds, insects, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, etc. Especially stuff that attracts insects, because they are like the second level of. The food, food chain. The, yeah, the yes. food chain, the trophic structure. Yes, yes. So people might hate that. Um, insects, uh, they might hate the fact that insects are being attracted, but trust me, they're gorgeous. Other animals will love them. Right. Yeah. Right. You need places like ponds, bird baths, streams, um, things like that for water. Mm. You need, um, for shelter, native shrubs um, to hide under piles of wood um you need things like um i think they're called stands where they're just um decayed pieces of wood that like i've dragged out onto your side yard right um animals live in that insects live in that another quick aside should be snags not stands and snags can be any dead tree um, that goes from uh dead while it's still standing upright or if it's fallen over and any stage can really provide habitat for um, any animal, whether it's upright, it has uh, insects eating at it, um, some mushrooms, um, woodpeckers eating at the insects inside. When it falls over, um, you can have amphibians, mosses, rats, just literally anything you can think of that might be found in a forest understory. Okay, now back to it. Um, bee and bird and bat houses up in trees and trees as well. Mm. Those provide shelter. And then places to raise young. Again, bee and bird houses, ponds, streams. Um, certain plants are places where insects, amphibians, uh, anything hides. Dead trees, again, and dense shrubs. Those kind of overlap. But certain animals will only do that in certain, certain plants. So you need certain areas to, to help them. So... Mm. I'm trying to get all four of those. And if you want to have a native wildlife habitat, 
those are the four four qualities you need when you get um, when someone comes out to look at your property. So we've gotten a few of those already. We've yeah. started to rip out your front grass here. We already did that. Yes, and I don't know if you've touched that on that previously on your podcast, have you? Have um, you, about it? you know, I, I kind of nudged at it that you need to rip out it, and I, 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 I've already started to, yeah. Yeah, well, we took a, a 10 by 10 foot swatch of my front lawn and tore it all out by hand. <laughs> um, and then you had a bunch of native seed that mm-hmm. you that you spread and... And, and planted yeah and we roped it off and uh, let it set and for months I kept asking you are we sure anything's working here <laughs> I don't know if I'm not seeing anything you're like just be patient Marcus yeah but were like, you really okay. worried I wasn't worried I was just like is anything gonna happen well I was kind of worried yeah like like our efforts were for naught yeah until looking at it now, there are there are flowers bursting out of it. There are plants that are over a foot tall now, mm-hmm. easily, um, and it reminds me of a meadow that you yeah. would, that you would see in the wild. Yep. Um, and I, it, it's got a very crude stake and rope yeah, barrier right. around it, but I want to build a fence around yes. it and make it a bespoke garden yes. in its own right. Because that's what it should be at yeah. this point. It's it is it is on stage one yeah. of it right now. It takes and it's great. It's great already. I wasn't expecting this many flowers already. Um, they are a few peas. Um, there are some um, bread wheat growing up. There is some sedges, which is like grass but not grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is. Um, some rudbeckias, which are related to the cone flowers that we talked about, but these guys are yellow, and they attract so many little tiny bees. We've gotten spiders hiding in those flowers, waiting for bees to come to eat it. Like it's already attracting so much. That's amazing. And you know, f- a few years later, this it's going to look completely different in oh, a good way. That's wild. I love it. I love yeah. it. And um, you know, th- talking also a little bit more about that about the yard itself. Uh, rotating back to that from the beginning of our conversation the side yard proper is very sandy and hardly anything grows in it but adjacent to that area that we've recently grown with that new seed that you put down with all of those new plants you just mentioned is a really really beautiful carpet Mm. of moss Mm. that we want to capitalize on Mm. and keep growing out and hopefully turn a corner of the yard into uh, a Japanese style garden in its yes. own right. Yeah. I, well, I think what I've also been imagining as well is, is the, f- the fusion of both of both your heritages, yeah. uh, both American and Japanese <laughs> um, mixing the Japanese style with, with native plants. I can't think of anything better. Yeah. I want to put a pond out there. Yeah. Um, you can put koi in there. That's not going to be so cool. The frogs are going to live there. I mean, I want to put some native orchids mm. out there, um, especially because there's a, a spruce out front that's acidifying the soil. I need a, I need I need them in my life. There. <laughs> and oh, my gosh, we've put some logs out there for insects to hide. There's a rock pile with um, some spiders and other insects are hiding in right now in yep. It's it's going to take a lot of energy, but it's worth it in the long run. And you don't have to mow 
that side yard. No. <laughs> no. You don't have to mow it. You don't really have to water it. Yeah. It's pretty sustaining on its own. And right. as we go along, you know, it's going to build up. Right. I'm going to put shade-loving woodland understory plants all underneath of it. And in spring, it's going to be the most gorgeous just show of white and pink and, and blues. How that, cool. Yeah. I can't wait to yes. see that. Like, it, it's it's been, a you know... Uh, a, a, a sandy a sandy pit for so many years and and due to all the shade i always figured that nothing could grow there but um that's definitely not the case yeah yep it's not the case and you know we aren't just doing this for our for for nature as well i mean we are having a garden in the back that we're wanting to expand but right. they 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 can coexist yes you know? You can meld it beautifully. And the thing that the thing that I hope happens too is that because my property is so close to that metro park on its own, is that I'm hoping that there will be some sort of spread, spread or yeah. benefit between the yes. two areas in in having you know just a mutual symbiosis in mm. terms of both plants and animal life and insect life or whatever comes out of it. I want to be able to draw more you know critters and insects and things I, from the path I do too. into the property and it's a refuge yeah right and 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 allow that to to propagate and move back and forth between my property and theirs yes and i i've i've wanted and imagined putting up some signs out in the front about it to mm -hmm. for the native community around here or native community i'm stuck on i'm stuck on animals other than humans so for humans who live in painesville to come and see it and be like oh my god i can do this too you know what's really funny is it would be a perfect place to put signage because it's the, right on the path the sidewalk literally ends and leads down into the path yeah in front of my property yeah. so putting signs up against the fences that are there for people to read and you know, just to gawk at, to gawk at, and explain why the yard looks the way it does would be super beneficial. Because now this is my side story. Um, earlier in in late mid to late spring, we got pamphlets from the city of Painesville. Um, not digging on you, the city of Painesville. Everybody makes mistakes and can learn and grow from it. These pamphlets stated that. People need to remember they need to mow their lawns, keep it at a certain height. And um, if if weeds get out of control, um, they're going to come and somebody might look at it from, from the city and then give you a warning. And if you don't cut it, they'll cut it themselves and charge you. And charge you for all their labor. Right. Yes. Yeah. And... And, and they only give you a warning once a year via letter in the mail if yeah. you ever have any of these issues at all. You never know who's looking or when. Or how until this magical piece of paper shows up in your mailbox. Yeah. And so it, it it's kind of silly. A lot of places have, have city codes and ordinances like this. But in that pamphlet, they, they put that as like a little factoid that weeds attract crime. <laughs> yeah. They attract crime. Yeah. Like the presence of weeds means somebody's going to loiter there. Or they're going to rob a bank in the general vicinity, or there's going to be a drug deal because there's weeds there. Which, I can't. I'm rolling my eyes really hard. You can't hear that, but I'm doing that right now. <laughs> and when I called the the official, who I don't remember his name, 
lovely man otherwise. Um, I disagree with him on this point. <laughs> he he. I asked him, you know, how do you differentiate between native plants and weeds? And he didn't have an answer for me. So, so, so it's my worry that I'm going to come over one day and it's all gone. Right. Yeah. Or or you'll see me protesting at somebody, you know, trying ha. to cut it down right. because they can't tell the difference between yeah. the plants that we've put in the ground and weeds. Yeah. Because it doesn't look like a lawn. lawn. No, it doesn't. But it, I think it's better. It's, it's prettier than a lawn. Um, you don't have to get rid of all your grass either. No. I want to keep some grass. That's fine. Just... But... But in terms of, like, landscaping it to be a native refuge in its own right, I think is a, it's, I think it's a really, um, it's an interesting experiment. Hmm. And I think it's a really necessary one. Yeah. Um, and it's something we can all, you know, we can, we can both learn from and see what works and what doesn't and see what thrives and what doesn't over time we're we're making these changes that are incremental and simple and small and so yeah. far all of them seem to be working yeah and which which makes me very proud so there's a lot of plans for the future um and there's a lot of plants that I want to put out in your landscape to further this um but for those of you who might be listening and and are thinking well what what should I plant? What should I do instead of my grass? I have a few plants that I personally think um, are are good are good starters are are good things just to have to support animals for food and shelter. Um, Buttonbush, Cephalanthus is one. Um, if you have a wetter area um, or you put some mulch down, um, that that's a great one. It's gorgeous. It's a big bush. It provides some cover too. So. Um, it can block out a little bit of your area if you want some privacy. It attracts bees. Um, Monardas or bee balms um, kind of remind might remind you of um, a mint or a uh, that cardinal flower I was talking about. Mm. They are loved by hummingbirds and butterflies. They are like these big radar dishes of flowers. How cool. Yeah. What color are they usually? Pink, purple. Okay. Deep purple sometimes. Yeah. Like a maroon. lot of like Sometimes a lot maroon. of the plants I saw on yes. the slide on yeah. the on the quiz you gave me. Uh a lot of butterflies and hummingbirds are attracted by those colors. That's Ah, oh, I see. Yeah. Um little blue stem, that's great for uh that's great for moths. Um and you know, if you still want some grasses, that's a great grass to have. It doesn't get too big, doesn't spread out too wide. Um for trees, two that I am planning on planting on your property are pawpaws. And service berries, pawpaws are described as a banana mango, and they're native to this region, and not many people know about them. You can eat them. They're delicious. Animals love them, too. Um, service berries are like, if you mix the cherry and a blueberry together, and they have three seasons of gorgeous color, and birds love them, deer love them. Um, they provide great shelter. They're not giant trees, either. And then blackberries, prickly pear cactus, which is another native that's you don't expect to be. Is here. it? Yeah. What? Yeah. It, some cactus extend all the way up into Canada. Cacti? Yeah. So, so much of our knowledge and images of cacti are always in deserts. Desert. Yeah. 
it's it's so strange to me that yeah. they're native cacti in Ohio. Yeah, there's those adaptations um, stretch northward. If they are in a sandier area where they might not get water as much as other plants, that, that they might do well there. So there might be little pockets of them. So prickly pears are good. Animals can eat their fruits. We can eat their fruits too. Mm. All cactus fruit are edible. Mm. And then hawthorns, I hate the tree, but birds love them. They are stabby trees and they look <laughs> craggy and uh, miserable, but good for good. So a lot of people like them. Their flowers are really pretty in the spring. So those are things you can plant. Um, any plant that's native is going to have an ecological impact. Something out there is adapted to this plant, has evolved with this plant, and will help your landscape. And will seek it out if yes. you plant it. Yeah, if you plant it. Yes. They will come. They will come. They will which come. is what we've found with the the seeds in the front patch of like round we have. Yeah. It's it's really yeah. amazing to watch happen. So Marcus, last thing, um, in the future of of this property, what is something that you would like to see happen here? Oh, um, that's a really really good question. I I would love I would love uh. Low-hanging fruit, really simple things. I mm. would like um, a lot of aromatics mm. in and around the the house proper. So Ooh, spice bush, oh. uh, yeah, spices and 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 aromatics of any kind that would be punchy in the springtime and summer. Uh, obviously, an herb garden, which is you know also pretty simple yeah. to to grow and to propagate for fresh herbs for cooking. Um, a raised bed uh, vegetable garden would be uh, amazing. Um, that's something you and I have both talked about after battling the current one that we've got back there <laughs> in, its, in its current state. Um, but I would really love to see, you know, a few more uh, fruit trees like you've mentioned with the pawpaws. Um, uh, we've got a couple of small blueberry bushes out there that have surprised us with how good the fruit is off of them. Hmm. Um I would really love to see a more propagation of the raspberries again versus the the, the um, inundation of blackberries that are back there. I mm. would like that ratio to change. Um, but most of all, I would love to eliminate a majority of the lawn itself and have most of the lawn or yard look like what that front patch looks like now. Yeah. I want Has it converted you? It has. I want I want my yard to look like Fantastic. a meadow with with stone paths, yeah. uh, you know, snaking in between it or maybe like a stone bench here and there for for sitting amongst it and yeah. just to just to, to be able to commune with it and spend time with it and sit in it um and not have to mow it <laughs> for one thing because the the yard's you, you a might pretty have, good size. You might have to mow it, but it's it's less than you would Right. With grass, sometimes you sure. do have to mow it, especially when you first start out. But that's the, all of those are achievable. And honestly, I am very happy to hear. I'm happy to hear all of those goals. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think all of those are very achievable. And you know, it's a lot of it's a, a lot of it. I can see in my mind's eye. You know, and I want to be able to honor my parents and all of the work uh, and labor that they put into this place over the years. Yeah, and their love of plants, both you know vegetables fruits and flowers all of that and be able to to plant my own versions of them 
on top of hearkening back to the things that they planted themselves, I would love to have a small rose garden mm. uh, in, in memory of my mother, for example, or wow. and, and that sort of thing. There's yeah. a few native roses that I, I, I would absolutely love to plant. Yeah, that would be great. Have them uh, tucked right up against the house. And, yeah. 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 And also, like, um, I've I've made scones before with rose, rose petals oh. in them yeah both as like and lavender and lavender would be they fantastic. are delicious they are really really like a little bit of fruit and rose petals at the same time the 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 fragrance i want your stones and, right and the, now. And the oh taste God. of them are so good but yeah being able again being able to walk outside and pick your own stuff and put it in your food and consume it there's there's nothing really like it so anything that that can can support that end or that goal on top of creating a space to where native um, insects and yeah. animals and birds can propagate and create this beautiful ecosystem out of the property itself and allow all of it to thrive. I think that's a beautiful thing. And to be able to bring that to this place, um, yeah. I, I don't think there's any other yard in this town that would even look no. close to it. No. <laughs> I think I think you put it very, very well, Marcus. Um, we, as humans, like to think we are detached from nature now since the industrialized, uh, industrialization yeah. of, of the U.S. Right. and the world has happened, that we're somehow above it. But we are just as much a part of nature as anything else. And we can cohabit. And we can do it beautifully. Yes. Agreed. And Marcus, oh my God, thank you for spending this time talking to me about this shit. Yeah, this um, has been fun. This has been <laughs> I've lovely. Learned, I've learned a lot. It's an hour and 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> might not stay an hour and 30 minutes long, but oh my God, that was great. Yeah. I hope everybody, anybody who's listening, um, got inspired by this conversation. And if you want to learn more, I will post more on my show notes and um, on my up and coming website. Uh, and have a fantastic day. Thank you, Lily. Thank you, Marcus. Have a great night, man. You too. Bye. Bye. Wow, this episode was a, a lot longer than I was expecting, but um, hey, you know, it's all good content, I guess. So if you want to look up Marcus Freeman elsewhere, um, you can find him um, through some of his works. He actually plays Dungeons and Dragons or a tabletop role-playing game um, with a group of friends. And it's kind of cut up into more of like a cinematic style. Um, so they give you all the action bits with a group of voice actors. And it's called Sonic Realms. You can check it out where you find podcasts, too. I recommend you give it a good look, especially if you like that cyberpunky feel. He also does audiobooks. So if you look around, you might actually hear his voice uh, right directed right into your ears occasionally. So. Um, give them a good look up and give them some uh, attention too. Thanks. Have a great one and plant native plants. This is definitely going to be a part of my uh, podcast. I'm keeping this in. Not editing it. <laughs>